Welcome back to the DLP Report podcast. On this episode, we continue our discussion with Discoveryland lead Imagineer Tim Delaney. We're going to be talking about all the attraction in Discoveryland. This is an all Discoveryland episode. Um, of course, we'll be discussing um, designing, building, operating Space Mountain. But we start the show with questions about uh, legendary attraction, Le Visionarium. The big breakthrough on that was let's take it from a movie to an attraction. And I think that that's, that, that, that means a lot to people who work on it. I mean, that's really important. Um, not to put the movie thing down, but because we had so few attractions in Discoveryland, I wanted something that was really special. And when you know you say that, and you're like, oh wow, okay. Oh, this oh, this is interesting. And then, you know, that whole natural thing is there are nine screens in there. So we had a robot that we're sending through time and you know, you know the story. Um, you know, it was like, oh, okay, well, you know what, this is kind of this is kind of fun. I mean, let's see how it works. We've never done it before. And there's a lot of that that goes on, you know, like when you do stuff over and over again, you know, sometimes when somebody goes, well, we need to have this done, you're like, okay, but you never just go, no one ever just goes, okay, well, we'll put a, you know, travel log in it. No, 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 it doesn't happen that way. But then it tests you and it tests you. And when you actually say we can turn this into something else, then let's, turn into something else. And, um, you know, and, and so uh, Tom Fitzgerald was head of the film or he's head of theme park productions and Tom, Tom had written the story treatment. And I remember we had a day with, um, we had mother, it was Mother's Day as a matter of fact. It was Mother's Day where we uh, met with Robin Williams to go through the script and we spent all day working with him on it. And, um, and he kept saying, oh, my French is really good. You know, <laughs> the French people were like, eh, no, it's not. <laughs> But uh, that was a, you know, it was kind of an interesting day deal with, to deal with him on that kind of stuff. Because to hear it read through, just, I mean, again, whether it's anybody else, but just, to, or just him, but having a read through on that kind of thing was really, it suddenly you could like begin to imagine this, you know. And we saw some test footage and, you know, um, you know, um, Michelle Piccoli, I think he was the one that was Jules Verne mm -hmm. in it. You know, when we first saw the, 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 the opening scene with him on the front of the GGV was, um, it was like, okay, well, this is kind of crazy. You know, this is kind of nuts. Um, you know, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it, I mean, I, I think it was, it was a really clever idea. And I worked, for, it worked pretty well there. You know, it worked pretty well there. It, they put it in the other parks and I don't think it worked as well. I don't think it really, you know, it just didn't have the same kind of audience for it. But, um, but um, you know, yeah, it was it was like okay. I mean, this is great. It was great. I mean, Tom Fitzgerald's groups did a great job, and you know, it was it was pretty good. The the one surprising thing that really the thing that surprised me the most was, um, you know, we had that really elaborate pre-show, you know, with all those energy tubes and going into the screens and all that stuff. Well, people would go in there and they'd see it. Then I'd watch see people walking out of the show, you know, walking out of the the entrance. They walk out the entrance, you know. And I think that they thought that was the show. They didn't wait for the doors to open and go into the other part, you know. But um, yeah, so, and, and then the other thing is I designed the robot. I designed the robot um, and I designed it with a, uh, um, I, I wanted to create something that had not ever been done before. When you see the ro uh, all the animatronics that are ever done in Imagineering, you know, they're all being built and they have plastic bodies on them and all that. And I just said, hey, you know what? 
let's just not put any, let's not put anything on them. Just light the inside, load it up with fiber optics. And for some, it, it just worked. It worked really well, you know. Um, you know, you, you're asking things that are a little bit different um, in terms of how relationships within the company work. This is a good example of it. I was in a, I was in a meeting and um, meeting with Michael Eisner and Michael had mentioned that he was going off to, uh, going on vacation for a month. And we were finishing and I had, and I had somebody, I mean, I did some paintings of Robin Williams as a robot. And then I had a, a head made from a paper, I had a really good paper sculptor do this head. And so I left the meeting hearing about Michael going, and we were on a tight schedule. We were really on a tight schedule. So I went to Marty, I go, you know, I need to have, Michael left, he's gone. I need him to buy off on this whole thing. So Marty just said, well, just call him up. Just call him up, go to the studio. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and so I call him up and he goes, yeah. Oh, I call the secretary and say, yeah, Michael, will see you at five o'clock today. So I went over there and I had one of the guys working for me. We took this head model, we took these renderings and Michael was sitting at his desk. And so I said, here's the deal, Michael. We were talking about doing Robin Williams for the show and explain the whole thing. What do you think? And so, you know, we had a five minute conversation. Said, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, and then um, I'm walking out. So when you say, are things different? Yeah, things are different. You know, I'm, I, I'm not sure that, I mean, the company is, it's because the company is so big. You know, um, the other thing I will tell you, uh, specifically to vision, circle vision, or excuse me, uh, visionarian. There were times where, I mean, we had built the buildings and the land just filled with dirt, mounds of dirt everywhere, but the buildings were built. And um, it was a time when we were actually working on, they were programming the pre-show for circle vision. <clears throat> so I, you know, I had my usual day and then I left to go home. I mean, let me just tell you something. In the last eight months or a year of a project, you work seven days a week. Okay, it's 18 hours a day. So I, I worked till about seven o'clock, went home. I, have two, I had two little kids, my wife, I had dinner with them. And then I got up at 2.30 in the morning and went back to work. You know, and I parked behind Star Tours. And I come walking in between um, Star Tours and Captain EO Theater. Pitch black out there. I mean, you can barely, you might see some construction work out there. And I'm walking along trying not to fall in a hole. And I see somebody, I see somebody walking in the land. And I, you know, I look closely and I'm like, oh my God. I mean, it's like, I go, Michael, is that you? And it was Michael Eisner. And he goes, oh, Tim, thank God you're here. I'm like, yeah, what are you doing out here? He's like, I got into town, I couldn't sleep. So I went, oh, okay, you wanna take a tour of the park? Yeah, let's go. I'm he happened to be here, you know. So so anyway, we walked up to the pre-show for uh, for visionarium and go in the back door. And here's Tom Fitzgerald and, and um, Bob Zalk, Carol Chindo, and there's some other technicians, and some people are laying on the floor. It's 2:30 in the morning, it's three o'clock in the morning, you know. So I'm like Hey guys, and they all look at me like, eh, look who I just found, you know. So Michael comes in, he sits down, and you know. And so, as I mentioned to you, when you work on a project like this, especially when you're programming rides or, you know, like what we were doing for Space Mountain, these guys were killing themselves, you know, trying to get this catapult 
programs. These are enormously, when I talk about, they are enormously complex. So you have animation you're doing, you have story animation, you have all of these things taking place. And when these people are just, you're just working, you are working. This is what you're doing. This is a job. This is, this is, but you know, it's, 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 it's invigorating and it's exhausting at the same time. So when the CEO of the Walt Disney Company comes walking in and he's like, hey, so how are you guys doing? What's, you know, how's it going? And everyone's like, Ugh. <laughs> oh, it's great. You know, they're like slapping you, you know, themselves trying to wake up and, you know, cause it's exhausting work. It's, um, it's a huge boost to people. You know, when the CEO of the company is, you know, and, the, and it was, you know, the company was booming at the time. It was just still taking off. Um, I would say they had everything they touched turned to gold. And except for, you know, the, the Euro Disneyland kind of was their first bit of a stumble. I'm being honest with you. And, um, but then right after that, a whole series of events happened with the management and some were unfortunate and some were business. But, um, but at that time, the anticipation was spectacular in the company and Michael and Frank were there and it was great. And, and it really is uh, rejuvenating to have someone like that come in and talk to you and when they really care and they really care. I mean, you get a guy like Frank Wells, he was, I want to ride everything. You know, Frank was just, Frank is, a, you know, he was my, Frank Wells is my big hero. You know, he was, he was great. It was the saddest day in the company when in April of 94, when he was killed in a helicopter accident, it was devastating. But in those days, that team made this company go. And that, and they carried on the legacy of Walt Disney. That's what was so extraordinary about it. Kat, did you want to talk uh, about Orbitron? Yeah, sure. Um, so we had just talked before about how it was the major weenie for Discoveryland before Space Mountain. So I was just curious about how the attraction itself was designed and what made you choose to make it a spinner type attraction, which usually doesn't tend to be the centerpiece of the lands. Do you remember that part I was talking about a program? You know, you have a program for different rides. And so you, you really, they, they, you not only have a program for capacity, but also types of rides. So generally you'll go through and they'll say, well, we want, um, want a B attraction, a C attraction, two Ds and one E. You know, I mean, that this is part of the nomenclature of what Imagineering is all about. So um, again, it's a situation where like, well, you can just put a rocket jet, a rocket ride, you know, uh, in the middle. And I'm like, ooh, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no, we could do it. We could do it. Um, but I, but I will tell you that you can have different types of rides and really how you position them is really where the value of them is. Um, if I could have put that on a tower that was 30, meet, 30 meters in the air, I would have done it in a heartbeat because the one at Disneyland when it was in the center is amazing. Okay. It's the same ride, it's the same kind of roundy ride, but you put it 30 meters in the air and it becomes something entirely different. So I'm like, oh, how are we going to do this? So you look at you look at planetary models and you see all these things kind of going around and, and you're like, oh, okay, you know, let's create a sense of peril here. You know, like these things are you're going this way and some planet is going that way. And that and that and that kind of replaced not being on a 30 meter tower, but rather, you know, how do you create something that that looks like and, and when it runs completely correct. I mean, when it's always running 
you know, even during when it's being loaded and unloaded. A lot of times they don't do that because it takes a lot of maintenance to do that, which is disappointing. But it 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 is an attraction um, that that gets your attention. But when you're riding in it, you see these things that are out, you know those those spheres. I have photographs when we were assembling that thing. It's in the middle of the winter. It's snowing, and we're standing next to a ball that's ten feet in diameter, three and a half meters in diameter. And um, you know, like you don't see how big it is. You don't you not don't know how big those it looks like, oh yeah, big spheres. Yeah, yeah. We stand next to one and they're like huge. And um, so you know, you, you do something that is actually looks like it's impossible to do. And those things, there's no way. It looks like it's a random kind of orbiting thing, but nothing nothing there. I mean, everyone has its own flight path and nothing can nothing overlaps. And um, you know, they um, you know, it just um, uh, Zemparella made the attraction and, um, you know, uh, and when I first saw it, we went down to Italy and they, you know, it was unpainted and it was up on a platform and I was completely shocked, <laughs> you know, and then, oh, one great thing about it is we had a model builder, uh, Doug Hartwell, our model builder, he built a model of this thing that worked. It was about, oh, I don't know, half a meter tall. And, um, it was unbelievable, beautifully painted. And I will tell you, the guy who did all the drawings on it, I, I wish I could publish this. Mark Shoemate worked for me. He was a show set guy, terrific designer. He did a set of drawings. This is something actually you would be interested in seeing. He did a set of drawings that look like, like, I don't know, a Da Vinci book or something. I mean, his drawings are so fantastic. I mean, they, they should just publish this. I mean, I really should. Now that I'm, I'm saying this, and I'm thinking, huh, there's an idea here. Why don't I do something about that? It is the I I got a collection. I mean, I don't I I have a digital collection of them, but if you printed these like on sepia or something like, the drawings are so beautifully detailed, every nut and rivet on this thing, and um, it's really beautiful. So I mean, I guess maybe the point I'm I'm trying to get to is. When you have an idea and you can do a sketch, I mean, the sketch you see in all the books, that kind of marker sketch I did really quickly with kind of Jules Verne character standing there with his hat on and all that, you know. But once you get in the development of it and each phase of the development as it is, is each phase, you go through each phase, Mark's drawings and then Doug Hartwell's model. And then we start building at full size and then you see it as a mock-up and down in Italy. When you see it, it just, each phase, gets better and better and better and better and better. That's what it does. You know, this whole thing of like, well, let's start with kind of a half-baked idea, and then this part's good, and the next part, well, you know, we didn't get it done right, and uh -uh. that's not how things work. Things have to progress, and each step has to be one level of success on top of another level of success. And that's really, you know, that's really the key on how these things work. Um, so, I mean, I, and, you know, and then we lit it, and ringed it with the neon and, you know, it worked. It just worked. I mean, I, you know, I, you don't know, you don't know, but um, I, I, I do have um, a philosophy about design, overall design. The world of design is a big piece of pie, okay? Big, you can do anything in design, anything. But I've noticed that you can take a pie section out of that and you can say, this is, Disney design, okay. You don't you don't see gambling casinos on Disney property. You don't. I mean, I could use lots of 
examples that I don't want to use. But there's kind of a slice in the world of design that says this is Disney. Okay. And, and you can interpret it any way you want. Once you know what your slice of the pie looks like, then you can play anywhere you want in there. But it takes a long time to figure out what that is. You know, sometimes, you know, I see attractions out there in the world, maybe at Universal or some other place. And you go, oh, it's kind of interesting, or oh, I like it all. It's not a Disney thing. It's not a Disney design. So, you know, there's certain things. I mean, uh, I'll give you a perfect example, just really briefly. The Screaming Coaster for DCA, when I did that, okay, that's a Disney coaster. That's why the Mickey's, well, originally Mickey's head was in the middle of it. But it's, it's not the tallest. It's not the fastest. It's not, you know, it's not any extreme, but it is a really good, smooth coaster. That's what you learn how to do. So Orbitron ended up being the same way. And believe me, I'm just as shocked as, I mean, I'm, you know, it, when things turn out better than you draw them, then it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. I feel really lucky to do that. And it is iconic still just sitting in the middle of that. It's, it's just beautiful, I think. Yeah, it is. It is a thing of beauty. I just wish it was going all the time. I feel like, I feel like funny enough, it might because um, it is actually missing from the park currently. Uh, we've seen some photos uh, through, uh, you know, the updates that they give us of what's going on when the parks are closed and it's been entirely removed uh, from the park for maintenance. So I think they've taken it completely apart and uh, it's going to come back hopefully brand new. Uh, fundamentally, what, I'll tell you what the problem is there. <clears throat> it was um, all, all those joints are up there all need to be heat, need to be lubricated. And they just it's um, when, when maintenance is a challenge for a park. Um, things like that don't get taken care of. And, and it doesn't stop the operation of the ride. And so, you know, as long as the ride works, you know, and, and this is, and believe me, I, I'm not faulting them. I, I know how complex these parks are to, to, to run and to manage. So, um, you know, I mean, I understand it. I mean, I hope you're right. I hope that they do bring it back because it is a bit of, it's really special. You know, and it kicked off while well, there's one at Disneyland too, and then somebody else saw it and redid the one at Walt Disney World, you know, in their kind of astro orbiter thing. Incidentally, uh, just a side note, just to, so that you know, if you want to see more of them, go to China. <laughs> there's a park in Chengdu, somebody just ripped it off. And uh, then there's another really? park. Really? Oh, yeah, there's another park in, um, I think it's Lotus Land or something. They, they made one that's about. 15 feet tall and it just sits on top of the building. Everyone just kind of takes pictures of Disney parks and they reproduce things. So I'm just saying, uh, whatever. I guess it's, I'm I guess that's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You're right. That's exactly right. On the edge of Discoveryland was Cafe de Visionnaire, which is now the annual pass office, which right. I guess it, that place closed really quickly after opening. I don't know if it, if, I don't know if you know, but it was probably an operation decision or, uh, but in the back of it uh, was this beautiful mural. Uh, could you tell us more about it? We've recently, a photo of it recently surfaced online after everyone was asking for years and finally we found a photo of it. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about Café de Visionnaire and that mural? Well, I mean, the, the cafe was, you know, uh, on that side of the park. I mean, he, here you have this cafe, which is on the outside of Discoveryland in a sense, but, you know, it was all part of its architectural vocabulary. So uh, because that's also on that side is where the um, uh, stage for the castle was. So I think the original intent, and not necessarily did everyone know exactly what sight lines were going to be, we thought that cafe would be um, 
a viewing position for the for the for the cast or for the parade as well as for that stage. And I ended up thinking that I think that the um, sight lines weren't quite right or something. And and it maybe just been from it didn't operate or it didn't function uh, as. Uh, or not used or as profitable as they thought, so they shut it down. I mean, that, sometimes that just that just happens. I ended up doing a lot of that stuff. I did all the murals. I mean, I did all the posters. By the way, touching back on uh, on the Orbitron, the Orbitron poster is my favorite poster of all, and I've done a lot of posters for Disney. Uh, I just because it just has energy coming out of it. Um, um, and I love doing posters, and I'm doing a lot of them now for some other project I'm working on. But um, but the so the mural, uh, yeah, it was just a compilation. It's kind of like you're on the outside of the land, but I'm going to remind you of what goes on here. So there was an image of Jules Verne and rocket ships and all that. You know, I mean, it's just it's. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's typical. I mean, if there's a place, you know, like for example, uh, on the servery for Videopolis. You know, there's a big map on that wall or there's a big clock and all that stuff. You know, I would find time just to do a lot of that stuff. And then I would say, here, somebody go build this, you know. And I was very fortunate. I mean, they, they did a brilliant job of finishing all that stuff and uh, doing those maps. And, you know, I mean, I, that's the kind of thing that I, I kind of just dug doing. I love doing the artwork for it. You know, I actually, I would do that all the time if I could. You know, we talked about Epcot before, um, how a lot of attractions are getting taken over by IPs. And obviously, Visionaire became Buzz Lightyear. Um, yeah. Obviously, I mean, for, for even for us, for us fans, I think it's, it was kind of a big loss just because of all the work that went into it. And it was iconic. And even that link to France that, Jeff, you were talking about before, it became really iconic. It was Disneyland Paris, you know, and... Um, what did you think when you know Buzz Lightyear took over? Was it was it time? Was it needed? Was it inevitable at some point that the Circle Vision was going to take sort of be like taken taken over by by something else? You know, um, you could ask that question to many many people, and I'm probably the worst person to talk to about this. <laughs> I mean, I, I I probably have my honest opinion would be: Do I think that the attraction uh, probably should have been rethought? Probably. You know, it has a, they have a life cycle to them. I think un, under the umbrella kind of overall ethic of what Discovered I Am was supposed to be, um, I don't know, Buzz Lightyear, to me, feels like it should be in the studio tour. You know, I, I just, you know, it's kind of movie-based and all that. I, I you know, I've not been through it. I mean, I haven't been... I've been there since that opened, but I didn't go in it. So, I mean, but I built a Buzz Lightyear when I did Hong Kong Disneyland too. And so I know the attraction, you know, but I'm, I don't know, just, I, you know, I learned a, a great deal about the values of the corporation when I was working on the Aulani project in Hawaii. And we had a, had a meeting, I have this, I was doing all the original, original work for all the pool areas and all that. And Bob Iger came in and Bob Iger said something that I'll never forget. And he said, when we go to Hawaii, and you could fill in the word France for this too, right? When we go to Hawaii, right, this is going to be capital H Hawaii and small d Disney. And by that, what he meant is we're going to take the ethics and the ethos of Disney storytelling and tell Hawaiian stories. That's what we're going to do. It isn't going to be, we're not going to do rides. We're not going to have castles. We're not going to, it's not that. It's going to be take the essence of what makes something good. So I thought his capital H Hawaii, it's going to be about Hawaii. 
and this is going to be small d Disney. I would apply to this, and I wish that that we had kept this um, kept this attraction so that there was some tribute in this park. You know, I mean, you had the castle, you have, you know, the whole park is is really beautifully done, and I just think having kind of a, an allegiance to the European audience would have been a, a constant reminder of Disney's position where they are. It is a Disneyland park, but the influences for the local European audience, for the audience themselves, and basically Walt Disney, look at the stories, all his stories, almost all of his stories up to that point. I mean, obviously they've been Mulan and some of the other ones, but basically they're Western European stories and Western European, you know, characters like, like I said, Jules Verne and H.U. Wells and people like that. I mean, I don't know. I would have kept it, but I, you know, I was, it's not my decision. One of the disappointments I have for Disneyland Paris is that the last major attraction was Space Mountain done 26 years ago. I mean, that, it was never meant to be like that, you know? And I mean, and I, you know, I, I'm at the point now where I, you know, this is what I feel. This is how I feel about it. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong about that. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, I sit here and I can tell you great things about the Disney company, but there are certain things that I think that, you know, um, I just think that that would be, giving tribute to maybe there's something else. I mean, I don't know, but it's done in a fictional way. You know, I, I mean, it's funny because I normally am not in a position where I don't put myself in a position where I'm like, I see something that isn't right. And if I have control over it, I can't change it. But I, you know, I'm looking at it and go, yeah, what do you, you know, do I, th to go back to the original question, do, do I think that um, uh, Visionarium was, has a show that is a show that lasts for 30 years? Probably not. Do I think I would throw it out and put in, um, it, it doesn't have the same feel and look to it. And I just think that there's an audience that really wants to have some, something that relates to their culture that relates to Disney. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Yeah. And, we, and we know on a sort of, on a more corporate basis, Disneyland Paris is very proud of its European heritage. They, you know, they say that, you know, we have all of these employees from obviously across the, across the continent and our suppliers come from, you know, across the continent as well. It, it just feels like one arm is saying that we are European and the other arm is just sort of almost ignoring it and almost receding in it, which again, like I said, I think that's sad. When you, when you go to a European audience, what are they interested in? I mean, the thing that blew me away, interested in Frontierland, the far west of the United States of America is a major deal. And when I see, you know, very sophisticated Europeans walking around. I, again, I, I'm, I'm, I may be really out of date because it's been a long time since then. But, but when they had that um, Wild West show out at, uh, you know, uh, at Festival Disney or whatever it's called nowadays, and then the next day you see the people, European people walking around with cowboy hats. I mean, they wouldn't be caught dead with a cowboy hat walking in Paris, right? But for a Disney park, they would. And that's true with all hats. Okay, that's true with all these things, you know? And so, um, so I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't shift Frontierland. Why? Because it's the Southwest and people love that. And the, and the big thunder there, I mean, Tony and Chris, and, or uh, Tony and, and, and you know, you know, Chris Teets and all that, and, and Skip Lang and all those guys who did all that stuff, did a fabulous job. It was fantastic. It's fantastic. Adventureland, you know, you got pirates. You got, you know, the treehouse. Fantasyland, you know, you got it all. Discoveryland, uh, I would stick with the theme, but 
no one's no one's calling me up for my opinion these days, except for you guys. <laughs> and I think I think you know I think we're all in the same we all in the same boat here because uh, Disneyland Paris fans I think we're all um, in agreement that you know I mean it's not that we don't want Buzz Lightyear I think we just don't want it there. But and also um, <laughs> I, agree. I agree. I when you said you know Disneyland Park hasn't had a new attraction for so many years um i could see patrick go amen over there in the corner because i think <laughs> it's also something that we've been saying forever yeah fist bump there yeah there you go yeah um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. You know, i mean uh, I, you know i i'm i'm actually i mean i i think one day was several years ago i realized this i mean i think when we were coming up on the 20th anniversary and i'm like what have you done for me lately you know i mean i i it, it is i will Again, I, I'll be, I'm sure there's some fan out there that, that can correct me on this, but frankly, I'm actually shocked that something hasn't been done sooner in that park. And they put out everything, everything goes, goes to the studio. Like, okay, well, you know, I guess they like the studio better. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I think they've been desperately trying to save the studios by adding things here and there, but eventually it needed a huge investment and, you know, now we're, we're, I hope we're finally getting it because the little fixes right and left just didn't work today. So uh, it's time to just go all, all out. But, uh, but, yeah. but I will say this. I, th I think the thing that I've noticed, so I've been sort of in the Disneyland Paris fan community for, I don't know, six, seven years now, something like that. Discoveryland is the land that brings out the passion I think more than any other land. Really, I agree, and I, I can tell you what I visited for the first time in 1995, and I was very much, you know, eager to visit your Disney and Disneyland Paris before that. But when the Space Mountain campaign came out, is when I had to just harass my parents and everyone I knew to take me. And finally, I visited in 95, just after the attraction opened, and really. It is what sort of like, you know, that was just too much. I just had to go. Um, and, and actually, let's talk about Space Mountain. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> that's that's right a great bridge. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was, hey, that's why I still have the mug, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I think for a lot of people, you talk about the advert. I think for a lot of people, that was the moment. Because, you know, I think sometimes there are moments where things just click into place. And I think that is one of them. That summer, that was that was the thing, you know. I think that Space Mountain was the thing that really made Discoveryland whole and and just like made me want to visit. So this, I mean, I've had a couple of people come up to me and say that that TV special um, changed their lives. And it was, was like, it was fantastic. I, I I think that's still probably one of the most the referenced Disney documentaries, even though the Imagineering story exists. I think that is the most complete story of at least one attraction well yeah. in in context to our conversation today it covered it covered everything that we've talked about it talked about walt's interest in space had man in space it promoted it promoted disneyland paris and and then it promoted uh, space mountain and um the reception the, re the response i mean it was overwhelming um you want to talk about space mountain now yeah <laughs> so i suppose we should begin with at least what i think is the beginning which is discovery mountain and how that all came about and the whole land was actually designed around 
Discovery Mountain. You know, and that was going to be this big, this big. It was going to be a hundred meters in diameter. And a lot of the design was a lot of the things we did at the park was basically you know the weather is inclement there in 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 France. And so, um, how do we actually have attractions that you can go inside? And so we made a link between all of the attractions together, from Videopolis you know, cross the bridges on those two round portals on Videopolis to you would get to Star Tours and you would get to Captain Hill and any other attractions that you want to get to. So it was a big giant attraction. So the problem happened to be that as the park opened up, it wasn't, I mean, it was, we knew it was going to, we knew it was popular. It, actually, as soon as uh, Euro Disneyland opened up, it became the, the, the number one uh, tourist attraction in all of Europe. But um, there was a problem with the hotels. And the hotels were overbuilt. I mean, everyone kind of knows this. Uh, well, not everybody admits it, but you know, we kept thinking, well, why are you building all these hotels? You know, um, going back and you know, you'll see that I, I link everything back. And I'm sorry, I won't spin out of control here. But when I was working on the Living Seas Pavilion, we would get done at night at like 10 o'clock at night. And if you wanted anything to eat, I had to drive. We had to drive to Orlando to get something to eat, dinner, right? Because no restaurants were open. The hotels didn't have anything. So when Michael and, Michael and Frank and all those guys came in, they looked at this thing going, and a lot of, oh, by the way, a lot of these, a lot of the executives that came into Disney were all Marriott guys. So they said, let's build hotels. So what they did is they had the same guys who actually had the strategy is, hey, let's build hotels first for Disneyland Paris. So um, what, what they eventually did is they ended up, um, uh, they had the park, the Magic Kingdom Kingdom opened up in the you know 1971 72 that era, and then they they created an attraction, and out of that attraction you ended up having all of these people show up, and then by '84 Michael said, "Let's build hotels." He built 30,000 hotel rooms, and then you you had the attraction, then you built the hotels, right? Okay, so for Disneyland Paris, they go, "Well, we're not going to make that mistake. Let's build the hotels." Well, Europeans don't, they don't visit hotels like we do. So I think you know, the price of the stock went down. And so it was in financial stress. And it's primarily not because of the park. They were going to the park, but there was a problem. And it was a whole businessy thing, which you, other people can read about. You can read about it. I, I don't want to get into that. Um, so, but, but it did have an impact. And so there was a, a group and I had done all those paintings of the interior of the Nautilus and the ride was up in the top of the mountain. And, and um, you know, the, it was just a whole kind of interior big volume space. And it was really never really, 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 really designed other than a big circle that was, you know, hundred meters in diameter with connections going out. There are a whole bunch of drawings and renderings, but basically there was nothing really kind of planned. I mean, uh, uh, nothing really um, architecturally taken to like a schematic design level, which really kind of places all the bits and pieces and where they're going to go. So there were hints like, look, you guys, the park's not performing. You better come up with, you know, the usual 62, di 62 meter diameter Space Mountain. And I was like, not going to do that. Okay, I mean, now we're going to do it. We're not going to build the Space Mountain in Paris. I mean, we're not going to build the same one from Disneyland. So, you know, there was some internal problems, but finally I got called into an office and said, look, if you want to make this thing happen, you got to do, I don't care, we don't care what you do. 
and I'll tell you this process too, is that it doesn't matter what you want to do, but we're going to build the 62 meter diameter space mountain and that's the way it's going to be. You can't, you can't, we can't do it. We just can't do it. You know, it's just not feasible. The money's not. So I said, so I had had a, a team working, you know, a, a, Doug, a guy by the name of Doug LeBlanc, the guy who did Star Tours is now my project manager. Um, and um, so we started designing it and there was an attraction here in one of the parks here and it had a, um, a horizontal catapult launch. And, and I know I'm going to speak heresy here for people who love the Disneyland Space Mountain. But I have to say that when I want to go to outer space, I want to be shot to outer space, right? That's what I want. So I don't want to go, you know, three lifts. And, and I, you know, I worked on the one in 77. So I, I mean, I didn't work on the show. That was somebody else. That was George McGinnis who did that. But, um, but uh, that's what I want to do. I just want to go, if you want to shoot something, let's go to outer space, you know? And I, and I think we should do, we should do this. So I talked to you know, started, started, you know, talking to engineers and, and there was a man who was in charge of the Disneyland Paris project, who was the head of the construction side of it. His name was Mickey Steinberg. And Mickey Steinberg was a really tough, hard nosed, brilliant guy. And he's kind of like our general patent, right? So he's on the call me and said, look, we can't do this. But I said, look, he says, here's, you have a budget, stick to your budget. So we started working on this thing, doing tracks with loops in it and a catapult launch. There had been a catapult system, but no one, no one had connected a catapult launch to a coaster as a start. That was the first time, first time for Space Mountain. Okay. There had been a catapult launch that went out, went into a loop and came back. Got it. But, and I'm sitting there writing this thing going, if you can shoot a 24,000 pound train out, run it into a loop and then let it run the energy out, you can take it to the top of a mountain, let it fall in. Why, why, don't, we, why don't we do that? So I pushed this, you know. And then the other thing is Tom Morris, who is the art director for uh, Fantasyland. Tom had always had this thing where he'd use his Walkman, Sony Walkman, and he'd put music on the track uh, for Space Mountain Disneyland. So it's like, hey, why don't we do onboard audio? And never been done before. So I was like, Tom, great, let's just do it. So you begin designing things. And there was a project, there was a team uh, and we kind of knew a theme, kind of knew the theme. Um, wanted to do it uh, from the earth to the moon. I mean, it was like, you know, it was like perfect. Let's just do this. Shoot it with a cannon. You know, we have a cannon in the story, you know, the Baltimore Gun Club, shoot it out of space. And so it's like, oh, this is working, this is working. So here's what happens is over the course of development of period of, of project, what you do is that you're always, you have, again, goes back to program. We had to have a capacity and we had a budget. Okay, and you can't break either one of them. You know, it doesn't do you any good. Like I got the world's greatest attraction, here's the budget, but it only gets 1200 people through. You know, you can't do that. You have to have at least 2,000. Disney, Disney attractions are very expensive because you have to have at least 2,000. On major E-type attractions, you have to have at least 2,000 hourly capacity because the demands are so high. <clears throat> and that's why, you know, people, you know, so many people come into the company like, well, gee, Magic Mountain bought, you know, build a coaster for, you know, $25 million. I'm like, yeah. And how many people go through it? 800. Do you want 800 going through it? No. All right. Then you have to spend this. And because it's all about the programming and the controls and you've got, six trains running and it's very complex to run. You, you wanna run a train through one layer or one, one length of track, you can do it, easy, no problem. You want two, well then 
one gets halfway through and then you start the other one, right? So it's like, it's easy to throw a ball like this. It's easy to ball, throw two balls like this. You can juggle three balls too, if you're really good. Start juggling six and see how long you can keep it going. Okay, it's very complex. So that was it. So, so we have these, I'm giving you all these insights. So we have these monthly project update meetings. And it's, um, it's a very intense thing. You go into a big conference room, there's probably 40 people sitting there, mostly project management, mostly people who control budgets, coordinators, project managers. And so you go through this inquisition and Mickey and whoever his next person sits right across from you, and it's a big long table, okay? And, you're, and you sit in the middle and you sit right across from them. So we'd have these things and $90 million. They could do anything you want, do whatever you want, but don't go over $90 million. So Doug and I would go in, we sit in at these, in these hot seats and every month we would go to this project update meeting and it'd be like, uh, we're at 93 million, gotta get down there. So this one last meeting, one last meeting we go into and I start my, okay, Mickey. So here, and Mickey says, stop, just stop. I don't want to hear this. I've been hearing this for months. I'm, I don't want to hear it. I do not want to hear it. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to the studio today, this afternoon, and I'm going to sign the, the paperwork to do a $90 million Space Mountain. I don't care how you do it. I don't care what it is, but you had better adhere to the capacity needs and don't go over budget. Now, get out and go get this done. I'm like, Okay, so that tells me he has confidence in our ability to do this. And believe me, this guy's hard-nosed kind of guy. So we did, and we got this thing going. And so they would look at the budget. Project manager came to me and said, you know, we, you know, early on, we can't do the white concrete space mountain like we have in all the other parks. So we're thinking about doing like a Temcore dome. I'm like, ugh. Temcore dome, that's like an off the shelf dome. So I said, uh, let me see what I can do. So, so I designed this thing with all those ribs on it, all that piece on top. And, and I had done the original 100 meter, three, yeah, 100 meter diameter one, but this curving, it was all glass on the outside, glass um, panels. And uh, it was gonna be horrifically expensive. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so I designed this whole thing and I said, Okay, I'll do the Temcore thing. The reason we were going to do this is because we we're going to build the, the, the ring around the bottom, have the coma drop the track in, then we're going to put the roof on top of it, then we're going to put the catapult launch going up the side. And it was going to be the schedule. This is how we're going to do it. So I said, fine, we'll do this, but you've got to build this. And so they were like, okay, we will build all those ribs and all that stuff because we know we can keep it under budget by doing it that way. And so I was like, okay, so that's why, I mean, I'm glad it happened that way because it's much more of a mechanical feel, which actually represents a lot more about like what the land is all about. So, so we begin this whole process and um, they start building. And, um, you know, meanwhile, we had built the Nautilus submarine and, you know, the, the Steve Brooks who was working for me. I told them, when you place where the submarine's going to go, make sure you don't infringe into this property line. I don't want somebody coming back saying, oh, we can't build Space Mountain because you've stepped into the territory. Well, where is that property line going to be? I have no idea. So you keep pushing that farther back to Autopia. So that's what we did. So like we started laying it out 
and um, you know, we started start building it. And uh, so we got, you know, we ended up getting there. And uh, and it was kind of a, you know, there were about a million steps that go in between, but between getting the ride system and getting the track, get all that spaghetti track to fit inside the building, you know, I had to be there. And so I mean, I have, I, mean, I still remember being staying in the base and open sky and track being dropped into the track and dropped, dropped into the building, you know, and then, you know, eventually built the top over it. And uh, they did it, you know, they were, I, I, I had a good relationship with the project management people. And if they say they're going to do it, they, they did it. And right now we, I mean, we talked, we stuck really close to the, to the budget. The one thing I wanted was I wanted in, in terms of a relationship to the old Discovery Mountain project, was I wanted that walkway going through the middle of the mountain. I want people walk, you know, if you don't want to ride the ride, don't ride the ride, but the queue is going to go through the middle of it. I don't want the load unload inside the building because it takes up too much area, I want it outside. So, you know, eventually, you know, I mean, this is all these years later, you can see that that's what we did. So, you know, so meanwhile, back at Disneyland Paris, everyone's getting really nervous. Okay, they're getting nervous. So, um, you know, I'm going back and forth. I'm literally flying every 10 days. I'm flying between Los Angeles and Paris, back and forth. And Steve Ramson's working on the, on the uh, musical score. We're working out um, how to get the onboard audio going. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty complex, you know. But still, you know, we're always getting beat up on the budget. So we had to, there's certain things I had to, I said, I'm gonna prioritize. I want everything built. The things that I was disappointed that I didn't have the money for is to put the effects inside the mountain that I really wanted to do. So basically the effects, sometimes the best effects you can do in any kind of attraction, theatrical attraction especially, is turn out the lights. That's what we did. So, I mean, I would have loved to have the star field going through. I mean, I think in some of the other versions of, you know, Mission 2 and, and um, um, the Star Wars hyperspace thing, I think that they have more of that stuff in there. And of course, there's always somebody's going to criticize you. Oh, you didn't have the same effect inside. Yeah, but look what we did. We built the mountain, built that track, the catapult launch, onboard audio, and put this, put the load unload outside next to the, to the uh, Nautilus submarine. And um, it worked. It really worked. I mean, I, I think it worked. You know, it was, and I wanted that cannon, and I wanted that cannon. A thing, if you look at the other stuff that I've done, like for Paradise Pier, I had, when you, when you design, when I designed Paradise Pier, I wanted everybody walking through the pier with the ride all around you. I like putting people in the middle of attractions. So number one, uh, you walk through the mountain or there was another short walkway, but you also queue through the mountain. And then number two, I wanted the guests who were on the track, or actually, I'm sorry, uh, on the train with all the gears and opening, the breech opening, the, the original, recoil back and forth and all that, which I'm sure doesn't work anymore. Um, I wanted the guests to be part of the show. And so you see them go into that thing and they get shot going up there. So it's like, you know, you want, you want the guests, you want guests who are on the ground looking, seeing other people doing something, number one. And number two, you want to be, you want them to be part of the show. So that's what we end up doing. So, uh, so it turned out okay. You know, it turned out great. Um, uh, and architecturally, it's, it's incredibly striking. And I know you've spoken a little bit on the architecture already, but particularly around colors and not just of the, the building, which has the mechanical, but also the lighting. 
they're both i know from the shoot to the moon documentary for instance the the blue neons around the top you're extremely passionate about uh, you talk to us a little bit about that well i'm like you know i mean I, I i think it needed to have this crown on the top that 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 i use that what appears to be a telescope and we had some special effects where the you know the track continues and the idea was like once you get shot then the special effects light up like all oh, they went in like vaporized into outer space you know it's just an art direction thing you know i mean i i i learn a lot when i do the paintings when i do the artwork i do the paintings of these things i know what something's going to look like you know like but and in a lot of times you know I, I i paint everything i paint most of the stuff in magic hour so it really brings the lighting out that's the most product that's the most dramatic way of doing things and so people are like well what colors do you want here in the lighting i'm like um right like this you know i mean it's i i I don't know why, I don't know why, but I just happen to have that. I just happen to have that particular skill. You know, I mean, I could paint the thing and I know what it looks like. I mean, I do the drawings and all that, you know. Um, it's just the way I, everybody works in different ways. I just work in that way, you know, but it worked pretty well. The park and the management of the park, Philippe Bourguignon, who's head of the park, was getting really nervous, you know, because uh, Michael, Michael Eisner had gone ahead and said, hey, you know, maybe we'll close the park, you know, if France doesn't give us some, you know, if the city or the country of France doesn't give us some concessions, <clears throat> they, you know, we, we may close the park. And so that was kind of a bad mojo, you know, going on about that. But meanwhile, what they were concerned about is, is one hand we were talking about, oh, gee, this park is not making money. The attendance had dropped from Ten and a half million to like nine million people per year, and oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We're singing the, you know, the, the hotels are not doing well. And oh, by the way, we're building this like gigantic mountain, which is costing them something. So they were really nervous. So we're getting closer and closer to the opening now. You know, the mountain's been built. We're test driving. You know, we're test running the track. You know, which takes months to do. By the way, they use, you know, they load the thing up with with uh, barrels of water to represent the weight of people. And they were testing the catapult launch. I had to ride the ride a hundred times, at least a hundred times to get the catapult launch to work right. And um, so Philippe calls me and he goes, you know, we're getting really close to opening now. And he's like, um, I've got 120 bankers coming in. And, um, and these guys, and the management of Disneyland Paris was extremely nervous. They were like, um, what, we don't know what we're going to say to them, you know. So they said, well, will you get out there and talk to them. It's like, when in doubt, you know, for management people like that, when in doubt, just push the Imagineers out in front. You know, that's, you know, let them take the, you know, the mud pies. So I was like, sure. Okay. You know, what do I know? I mean, I like, so they filled the convention center at the New York Hotel with, in the, the conference the ballroom there, the conference center. Um, and it was all these bankers, these guys, men, women, mostly men, you know, three-piece suits, little briefcases, all of them, you know. And I and I took, and I, and I got up there and I started explaining what we're doing, you know, like this is going to be this really amazing attraction. We, we, we've, we, we have new technology. We think this is really going to really ignite the park and all that. So the presentation went pretty well, you know, and I asked, are there any questions? In the first row, this guy raises his hand. 
And so, I mean, I can see off to the side. I know Philippe and his management team were over on the side over here. And this guy asked this question. He goes, um, we have a question for you. I have a question for you. This is, we think this attraction is really great. Can you tell us why you're not building like a few more of these? And I look. And you can see these guys collectively go, wow. All right, we dodged a bullet. So I was like, okay, guys, um, so something very special for you today. Uh, we have buses outside, and we're going to let you ride Space Mountain. You'll be one of the first riders. You know, we've, we've been testing for months. We're going to let you ride the ride. And then you can see, like, <laughs> I, thought, I, I figured half were going to bail out. Like, are you kidding? No. Everybody got on board. Okay. So we drove around the back of the mountain and we, and we put them around. We put, we, we, we actually walked them through. They could see, you know, they could hear the ride going through. They see the, the big meteorites and all that stuff. So they walked through, through the unload. They ended up going down to the, into the load, uh, unload building, right? And this was the funniest thing. I, you've probably, I don't know if you've heard me say this before, but it was the funniest thing. These guys all would line up and then they all got on the ride. And they took their briefcase and set them next to the, you know, on the on the load unload platform. And so they they go out and they go through the ride. So you see this thing go, and right now, you know, and right there on the track, you saw all these briefcases. So anyway, and they came off and everybody came off and they were really excited. I mean, they were really excited. It was we had some test rides. I, I wish I could find the videos I had of these people coming off these rides, off this ride. It was it was unbelievably exciting. It was really exciting. Now I'm going to tell you something else because we talked a little bit more about the attitudes that happened over there. When we opened in 1992, uh, I was there on opening day. And of course, like most Disney parks, everybody is um, like, oh my God, we're going to have 100,000 people show up. And, and, and I can tell you that every opening of every Disney park, the crowds are always, from marketing point of view, disappointing. Okay, so we had like 18,000 people show up, not, not 50,000 people. And I will say from a guest point of view and a cast member point of view, um, people were kind of like, eh, what is this Disney thing? We don't, what, what is this Disney thing? Yeah, the park's great, but you know, we, we don't get it. We just don't get it. They really didn't get it. Now, they didn't articulate this, but you could feel it. Okay, now that's 1992. We opened, in June, we opened Space Mountain in June of 95, and the world had changed. The cast members were now like totally on board. They, they, they understood they've had, they've been drinking the Disney Kool-Aid for three years. They got it. The guests coming in, they, they, they now knew what this Disney thing was about in terms of high quality, family entertainment, making memories, all those attributes that people want to, you know, that really, they didn't even know existed, but now existed with the Disney organization. So when the opening, we started heading to the opening for Space Mountain, it reignited the entire park, okay? They launched their marketing and, and, and advertising program there. And that, um, I mean, they had a hundred million Coke cans that had Space Mountain, Space Mountain logo on it. Um, the TV special came out um, <laughs> and uh, it, was, um, it was pretty 
amazing. The advertising, I love the ads, by the way. Somebody had done that whole, you know, that whole thing. Like it, it was, it was not, what I loved about it, it was not like any other uh, Disney marketing thing. It didn't have Mickey in it. It was like this kind of high tech, you know, dark, high techy looking thing. And I was like, this is a home run. I love this. This is great. And the opening ceremony as well, right? It was kind of like crazy. Yeah. They had all it sorts was, of... It was nuts. There were celebrities galore. I mean, it was like, it, it was amazing. We had that Elton John thing. And uh, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty darn amazing. And, and, and it focused on, on, um, on a, on an attraction that really made a difference. Right. Um, in 95, um, I accepted the award for the, attract for the attraction of the year for TEA. Okay. And I'll just tell you what I said at that acceptance speech. What I said was, this is the type of attraction that everybody dreams about doing. It was the right story, you know, the Jules Verne story, in the right place with the right technology and multiple technologies. Attraction that it came in at 89 dollars. It came in under budget. It um, it was kind of a tribute to the French thing. Um, it increased attendance by it went from we went from one year from like nine and a half to like eleven million. It increased almost two million a year. And it, and it was stayed on budget and it was an award winner. And I said, this is what we all dream of, you know? And I said, we had an incredible team working on this thing, dedicated, the ride engineers, programmers, lighting, special effects. I mean, it was just, it was, it was all there, you know, it was all there. Then we had that, you know, that TV special, which is, you know, I look at now, I just, I mean, I looked at it then, I just cringe because I'm not, a, you know, I'm not an actor. I was like, I was so exhausted in most of that stuff. It was just incredible. But we did have a really terrific team uh, really great team uh, filming that whole thing. Uh, being, me being shot, I mean, like going out to, um, which was it? I, wasn't, I, th I think it was at Orly Airport. You know, they shoot me going up the escalator and I'm like, I kind of get, I mean, and also there's a huge, by the way, if you look at it again, don't look at it too closely. There's a huge story problem in the middle. Like suddenly I had this concern and the next thing I know I'm in Paris, you know, it's like no concern at all. I mean, it's like, People are like, what the hell? I don't know. It wasn't me. I'm just like, they just go, go here, get in your car, drive, go up the escalator and then stand here. We'll shoot you and we'll create the story later. I'm like, okay. I remember that section because I think the narrator says something like, oh, and Tim gets on the next plane to Paris. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. Well, I was always on the next plane to Paris, you know, from, <laughs> from, from June of, uh, from, from June of 94 to June of 95. I spent 178 nights at the Disneyland Hotel. I mean, I literally was a week here, a week there, a week here, because I had to be back here because we were, you know, I have sit on the music session. They had, uh, the, Steve was doing all the music uh, orchestrations over at uh, Universal. And, um, you know, there's just a lot of things you have to get done. And that's actually one of our question. Uh, the music has become iconic. And not only was it a technological first, but it was also such a great fit. I mean, I listened to that thing a million times. I brought home a, a video, or no, an audio cassette. Even my, my kids really loved to listen to it. They were like five or six at the time. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, it was just, I, I, I didn't get to, I mean, I, I, there's nothing that I can contribute to the musicality of it. I mean, it was just like, we wanted a big kind of classic musical score. And the challenge that he had was, you know, we, we, we did an uh, enematic of flying through it. So you're always trying to match your, you know, the, the, the buildup and, you know, with a, with the physical aspect of the ride, you know, it's, it's like scoring a movie, you know, you know that's, that's exactly what it is. So, um, you know, I mean, he, you know, I'm let him do his thing, but, um, and, and I wasn't, it was kind of new to me in terms of uh, music production. And I will I'll never forget going over to um, Universal because they had one, they had rented one of the stages over there. And, um, you know, you walk in there and again, I'm, I'm going to feel, sound like a complete newbie, but I'm just like, because I was just amazed how fantastic it was. Um, you know, all the musicians are all kind of sitting around, some are outside smoking, you know, uh, you know, they're the kind of professional musicians that are, you know, very calm, but extraordinarily talented, you know, and then, and then you know, all right, let's get going here, you know, so everyone gets into positions and they're tuning their instruments and then Steve gets up there and he goes, okay, we're going to go to the, whatever it is, the fifth measure, at this, you know, it's like a needle drop, bang, the music stops, just starts right there. And like, don't they practice or anything like that? I mean, I, how do I know? But these guys just look at it, done, right? And you're like, and he goes, no, 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 no. I'm like, that was great. That was great. But I'm like, but I'm not, it's like, okay, you know what? I'm, 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 I'm way out of my league here. I, it, but it was quite extraordinary. You know, it was extraordinary. And was it was it so, was there some work on your end to sort of work with him with all the section of the coaster? Because I assume, like you were talking before, how hard it is to have six different trains. And of course, if one train stops, then the music is going to stop for this section. I think so. Was the the soundtrack had to be cut in pieces so that each train was having the yeah. right music at the right time, even if it stops? Yeah. Well, I, I think if, I think if the train stops, then they just go to you know, um, a PA addressing, like, stay in your car and don't do this. Do you, uh, do you know how the audio works on those kinds of things? I, you know, they have, um, what they do is that they have, uh, they have tape, they have magnetic tape on the, on the rails, on the, on the track. And what happens is that, um, that no, no two trains ever run exactly the same speed at all. I mean, there's, there's, um, there's weight, there's temperature, there's, you know, the weight of the vehicle, the uh, temperature in the building, uh, if it start running, if it starts running in the morning, it's slow and all that. Now, when I talk about it, there's variations on this thing. We're talking about mm, sometimes a half a second to a millisecond. I mean, it's not very much. So if you can imagine taking the length of this track, it's a big spaghetti track, and they'll have section A, you know, one, two, three, four, five. So if a train comes into a section of the track and it comes in slow, all right, so there's a tail on the end of the music and you don't even know it, but the tail, the tail of one matches, will meet the head of the next one. Okay. So you're going this way. And so if it's off, you don't hear any stops in it, but it sounds continuous. So they, it, it just, it just, it's an overlapping is really what it is. Okay. And if a, you know, so if a train goes, on a track that long, and, and plus you have a, 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 you know, a lift in the middle, on a track that long, basically you have, between all your trains, you have a break zone. So if, if you come into a zone and there's 
a train that's got a problem, they shut them all down in the break zones. So you, you don't ever have a train and you don't have two trains in one zone. It's, in, you, it's impossible because it's a disaster if you do that. Um, so this is, again, this is the complexity of this thing. Now, when they operate the trains, they'll start with three trains, then they feed into the fourth one and they feed into the fifth one, okay? Now, the reason they don't really like going six trains at once is because you're loading 24 people every 30 seconds. So it's like, you are moving and you have your operators get worn out, okay? So, but if you run 24 passengers every, and you launch them every 36, every 30 seconds, you can do the math on it and you will get 2,400 an hour. And Disneyland Paris came back to us and said, you know, you guys are all wrong. When you, and when you do capacities for attractions, you have two numbers. There's the operation, there's a theoretical hourly capacity and you could say 2000 and then you have operational. That means how do we really get, you know, like you might have to stop the train because you know you got a handicapped person to load and all that stuff. So theoretical, you should do 2400 an hour. So they always calculate, great, we'll get 1800, 1900, we can do it. We were getting operational 2400 an hour because it was running max, but you were exhausting your load unload people, your operations people. They're like, you can't just, you were running this thing through. So they generally run five trains. So that's kind of how all that works. Um, I got so many letters from kids after that shoot the moon thing. I got so many letters and I respond to every one of them. And they go, I had no idea that this is what this you could do. I mean, I, I'm interested in this. Could I do that? I mean, I, you mean, you know, I can have a profession and have fun at the same time. You know, I get these things all the time. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's what I do. That's what we do. And I can't promise people jobs at Imagineering, but I talked to this guy, I mentioned earlier about this guy who said he changed his life. He, he went to some institute in Switzerland and he's a world-class expert in laser uh, projection technology. And he goes, it was all because of that TV special. I went, good. I, I don't look at it as like it was me. I was like a zombie going through that thing, but it, it's what, it's what, I was connected to and representing that project. Join us on the next episode of the GRP Report podcast for part three of our discussion with Tim Delaney, where we'll be talking about the Nautilus, Star Tours, more Discoveryland stories, and his work after Disneyland Paris at Disney California Adventure. 